Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode one of the Wrestling Fanboy Podcast. I almost said the Fanboy Podcast, but no, this is the spinoff of the Fanboy Podcast. That's a show I've been doing since 2017, and on that show, I talk about things like DC on film, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and Star Wars, and Star Trek, and all that kind of geeky goodness, and that's my platform for that stuff. But deep down, I've always kind of yearned to have a platform for my thoughts on professional wrestling. Because professional wrestling is something I've followed now for about 34 years. Since I was about 4 or 5 years old in the late 80s, watching my great-grandfather Ernesto watching WWF superstars at 10 o'clock on Saturday mornings, when my dad would bring me to come visit my great-grandparents, I would see Ernesto standing there, is sitting on the couch on his big wooden giant box TV that he had there in the corner, and he'd be watching, and he'd be, metelo, metelo, and everything was in Spanish, because we, uh, we're a Puerto Rican family. And I remember sitting there next to him and watching him get super into it. So I started, you know, I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. So I'd sit there next to my great-grandfather, and I'd watch wrestling on Saturday mornings. And soon I was hooked, and this was the era of Hulkamania. I had missed... 87. I had missed WrestleMania 3. I wasn't watching it then, but shortly after that is when I caught on. I remember my first big Hogan feud was actually the one he had with Sergeant Slaughter. <laughs> so, oh, and, and Earthquake. I should mention Earthquake. My, I remember my dad took me to Madison Square Garden for a house show, and I got to watch Hulk Hogan fight Earthquake in the main event. And that was like the coolest thing ever when I was a little boy. And see, what's funny though is in the mid-90s, I kind of fell off, you know, I guess along with a lot of people, right? Because wrestling sort of hit a bit of a lull. After the Hulkamania years, WWF got a little bit stale in the early 90s. And then there was the steroid trial and, you know, wrestling just kind of fell off my radar. And I, I remember I, I'd even checked out a little bit of WCW at the time, and it just didn't speak to me. I remember seeing RoboCop show up at Halloween Havoc and rip a cage open. It was, you know, to me, WCW was just a hot mess. So in the early 90s, when WWF got lame, I really had nothing else to watch. It wasn't like nowadays where there's all these different indies and other interesting companies to follow. You know, if you wanted to watch wrestling on TV and the early 90s, you either watch WWF or you watch WCW. And really, for a short while there, for a few years, neither one of them was really a viable option. And wrestling, after being a thing that I loved, like, insanely for a few years, suddenly became a thing where I would just kind of pay attention to in the periphery. And then I remembered, I or no, one day I was watching and I saw the debut of Razor Ramon. And it's funny thinking back on it now because I didn't connect it necessarily at the time, or I didn't realize at the time what it was about him that I found so awesome, aside from the fact that Scott Hall is just the epitome of cool and always was. Um, you know, I'm half Puerto Rican and half Cuban. 
And when I saw this big guy from Miami, Florida, doing a Cuban accent and coming out and doing the razor's edge and throwing the toothpick, it was the coolest thing because that was the first time I had seen a, a Cuban on my TV screen doing something cool like that. I had never really watched anything that had someone that was from where my family came from. It's funny because nowadays, you know, in the last 20 years, pop culture has really kind of stepped things up and trying to have better representation on television so people could see themselves on TV. So it's not just one type of person on the screen. And nowadays, you know, we shows work really hard to be more diverse and to have characters from all walks of life. But I didn't grow up around that. All I knew was there is a big Cuban dude in WWF now kicking people's ass and he had an awesome finisher and he was a total badass. And I remember going and telling my mom, because listen, in a Cuban family, we celebrate our Cuban icons. Anytime you find out that like a certain actor or a certain singer or a certain director is Cuban, the entire family talks about it. You know, it's like, ooh, one of us made it through to the next level. You know, one of us is having great success. Cubans treat it like we're all just one big family. And I'm sure that's probably true of, you know, many nationalities, but in my house, the Cuban, you know, patriotism, the Cuban pride was very big. And when I saw Razor Ramon come out with his gold chains and his Hey Chico, I I just like, oh my, it was just so cool to kind of see my people. And it's kind of funny too, like to think now, like, is that cultural appropriation? Would he get in trouble for playing Razor Ramon since he wasn't Latino? You know, and I didn't know that at the time. I was fully convinced. You know, back then I was in 93, 94 when he came out. I was 10 or 11. And, you know, when they announced him as being from Miami, Florida, and he was doing the, the accent and he had the look down pat, I just bought it. I didn't think this was a white guy pretending to be a Latino. I wonder, though, like, would that fly nowadays? I don't know if it would. It's funny to think how much uh, society has changed. And it's also kind of funny to think that if Scott Hall would have risen the ranks nowadays, if he would have come into the wrestling world nowadays, he probably wouldn't have been allowed to play Razor Ramon. It's funny to think. So anyway, I remember the one thing, actually, I should say, yeah, the one thing that I paid the most attention to, coincidentally, was the click. All the members of the clique, and this is before I even knew about such a thing. I wasn't reading dirt sheets. I wasn't doing newsletters. I wasn't paying attention to any of that stuff. I was just watching the product on the TV. And by coincidence, the wrestlers that caught my attention were Razor Ramon, Shawn Michaels, who had now broken off from the Rock and Roll Express, uh, Rock and Roll, the, 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 the Rockers. God, see, I, I'm losing all my street cred. I just call Shawn Michaels a member of the Rock and Roll Express. Don't tell Jim Cornette, please. Um, but yeah, you know, I loved Razor Ramon. I loved Shawn Michaels. When Shawn brought in Big Daddy Cool Diesel as his bodyguard, I thought he was really cool, and I really followed that storyline when he eventually broke loose of Shawn and became a big star in his own right and became the WWF champion. Like, coincidentally, those three and the, the one, two, three kid 
who I would all later go on to find out that they were part of a backstage clique who was basically wreaking havoc behind the scenes in the WWF. But for whatever reason, those were the four guys who, like, I'm not really watching wrestling as much anymore, but when they're on, like, I'm going to watch superstars and I'm going to pay attention when those guys are on the TV. And then something happened. Then I kind of, like, drifted away from it again. And lo and behold, the rumor mill, or actually the word on the street around my school amongst other wrestling fans was, hey, did you hear? Razor Ramon showed up on WCW Nitro last week. And it looks like WWF is going to invade WCW. The, the war is actually happening. He came through the crowd. He grabbed the mic and he said, you don't know who I am, but you, you know who I am, but you don't know why I'm here. And he made fun of the nacho man and the huckster. And like it, you know, he was referencing the WWF mockery of WCW. And it really felt like whoa, there's an invasion. Vince sent these guys down there to wreak havoc. And remember, in 96, when that began, I was, you know, I, I, had, I hadn't quite turned 13 yet. When Scott Hall debuted, I was a month away from turning 13. So I was still in that young, impressionable 12-year-old mindset where I thought, this could be happening. This is crazy. So I tuned in to the next Nitro after I heard about that. And all of a sudden, now my fandom was not only back on, but it was more intense than ever because now I was hooked on this like crossover between WWF and WCW. And seeing my favorite WWF wrestler show up on WCW's TV and then tease that he's got a friend. And then lo and behold, we find out Kevin Nat, well, you know, Big Daddy Cool Diesel is the friend. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And then I and then I had to see how WWF, you know, like what they were saying on their TV. And the plot only got weirder and, and thickened over on the WWF side of things because suddenly Jim Ross comes on TV and he turns heel and he announces that he's got Razor Ramon and Diesel and they're going to show up next week on Raw. And I just remember like, what is going on in wrestling right now? This is really strange. Are Hall and Nash, who were just on Nitro, about to show up back on Raw and, 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 and lend credibility to this idea that they were trying to invade Nitro? And then what happened? When Ross shows us his Razor Ramon, it was Rick Bogner, it was the imposter, it was the fake Razor, and then we got a fake Diesel, and then I just stopped watching Raw entirely and just completely focused on Nitro now because that product was exciting. You know, WWF had gotten so stale. WWF had Duke the Dumpster Drossy. They had all these, like, you know, occupation-based gimmicks for their wrestlers, and the storylines were all very kind of cartoonish. It was the same sort of Hulk Hogan model. We were going to build up Lex Luger with the Lex Express, and then we're going to have him body slam Yokozuna, and it's going to evoke memories of Hogan body slamming Andre. You know, Vince was going back to that same well trying to get little kids hooked and trying to tell basically like superhero stories using wrestlers. Whereas Nitro 
felt much more like alive and edgy and it felt like you know and you had eric bischoff taking the piss out of wwf at every opportunity giving away the results of their matches and and making fun of them and having these these attacks by the nwo that felt like gang warfare you know they show up with baseball bats they're lawn darting ray mysterio into the side of a trailer there's police coming there's like you know i had never seen wrestling presented that way before it felt real it felt cool it felt like I don't know. It felt like the future. It just, it grabbed my prepubescent mind. And all of a sudden from mid 96, straight up until about 2005, I was a devout wrestling fan who watched wrestling every week without fail. Every Monday night, I was glued to my TV. And for the first like year and a half of my resurgence into wrestling in the you know for starting in 96 I almost exclusively watched WCW Nitro which was huge for me because again I didn't care for WCW at first when I was a kid WCW was a joke to me and Ric Flair you know I just laughed him off I I didn't know anything about WCW I didn't I didn't know the history I didn't know anything about NWA or Jim Crockett or any of that stuff that would all come later on but for me to suddenly go from having zero respect for WCW to suddenly now, this is my brand, uh, that was a big turnaround. And it was almost entirely because Scott Hall and the way that he launched that angle and the way he captured my imagination and how cool it was now to see him in this new light kicking off the, basically this revolution. you know, And then Hulk Hogan. That my first wrestling hero turns heel and joins them in the NWO, further adding that this is like WWF taking over WCW. Because even though Hogan had been there for a couple years, he was still most closely related to WWF. So suddenly him throwing out the red and the yellow and going in the full black and trash talking the crowd and being this dastardly, dastardly mega heel. I mean, I it blew my mind getting to see villain Hollywood Hulk Hogan standing next to Razor Ramon and Diesel. And then Six shows up, and then we have Mr. Per uh, not Mr. Perfect. We have the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, show up as the uh, the the Money Man, and then uh, yeah, and, and then of course they kind of you know eventually the NWO got too big, but in those early days where you even had guys like Brian Adams who had shown up, you know, he had been crushed on WWF TV, and then all of a sudden one Monday. There he is, and he reveals he's got an NWO shirt. And like that, that sort of thing was happening. That that spontaneous kind of you know, the, the, these these defections from one brand, you know, from one company to another, it made the show so fun to watch. You wanted to know who was gonna jump ship next. What kind of trash were they gonna talk about WWF when they showed up? And what crazy thing is the NWO gonna do next? And honestly, that Monday Night War era, to me, remains the gold standard for professional wrestling. You know, as excited as I've recently gotten in these last three years, ever since AEW popped up, 
as excited as I've been these last three years, to me, the gold standard remains that period between 96 until somewhere there in the middle of 99. Because, you know, let's not act like you know, WCW was worth a damn in those final two years. You know, for the, for the latter half of 99, for all of 2000 and for 2001, WCW was just circling the drain. But for those like three years there, between 96 and 99, they were producing some of the coolest damn wrestling I had ever seen. And my interest in them suddenly, you know, at a certain point, I did want to see how WWF was going to respond. And towards the latter part of 97, during the rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin, that's when I started seeing, ooh, this Attitude Era stuff is pretty cool. And then, you know, WWF won my heart back, ultimately, when WCW, when the booking went to hell, and the Attitude Era was the hottest, coolest thing, and we're watching The Rock and Austin and the birth of all these future superstars and the New Age Outlaws and this, you know, WF totally rose to the occasion, and that's why they won the war. But what Hall and Nash were able to accomplish when they kicked off the NWO, uh, to me, was nothing short of the coolest shit ever. So... With that in mind, you know, Hall is someone that I've always loved, that I've always rooted for, and I know he had his challenges, and we would hear about it on the TV, you know, even they would address it on Nitro, pretty much. And then I started reading the dirt sheets and hearing how actually real that was, that this party guy persona he has, it's not just a persona. This is a guy who's hitting it a little too hard and is becoming kind of unreliable and kind of a, a liability to the company. And yeah, I, that, that I was worried about that, you know, because I grew up around addiction. I, I, I have, there's a history in my family of people struggling with substances and getting clean and then falling off the wagon and then getting clean and then falling off the wagon. And a lot of that stuff sort of hits home. So when I heard about that, of course, I never judged him. It was just, you know, I understood, damn, he's he's up against something real tough. And I hope he pulls through. And I always had that thing in my heart about Hall. I hope he pulls through because this guy's awesome. And the more I started learning about him and even the fact that, like, everyone says he has such a great mind for the business, that he has a great mind for wrestling psychology, he has a great mind for developing characters. There's the famous example of how he's the one who suggested to Sting that he'd kind of totally reboots his character and becomes that crow Sting, which is a gimmick he's still using to this day. All right, Sting is still the crow, even though he's no longer a crusader trying to take down the NWO, he's still just stuck with that crow getup. And, you know, through all the trials and tribulations, even then when they brought him in to WWF, when they brought the NWO as the poison, Vince McMahon wanted to bring the NWO as the deadly poison to kill his creation. And, uh, of course, I paid a lot of attention to that because I'm like, wait a minute. This is the big homecoming that I've been waiting for. Razor, Diesel, and Hulk Hogan back on a WWF TV back and now they're feuding with Rock and Austin. 
whoa. And then that so quickly fell apart. You know, Hall's personal struggles apparently handicapped the hell out of that. Stone Cold being unwilling to really do great business with him totally handicapped that. And before I knew it, my boy Scott Hall was back unemployed again because of that reputation he had for being a bit of an intolerable substance abused, uh, abusive addict of, of sorts. And, you know, through the years, I would always just be pulling for him. I'd hear about little indie things he'd be doing, and, and there was sad stories of him showing up drunk, and I would see pictures of him all out of shape, kind of a total shell of his former self, and he's slurring, and he's a mess. And, you know, that, that, that stuff killed me to see one of my heroes really just kind of down and out like that. Because here's a guy who should be at the top of the mountain. This is a guy who's wrestling royalty, but he just was never able to stay on the rails for long enough. You know, and, and he never got that world heavyweight title run that he should have gotten. Let's be honest. Scott Hall is one of the greatest big men that has ever laced up the boots. And if to me, he's number one on the greatest wrestlers to never be world champion. And it was, you know, it was really sad to watch as a bystander. And that's why when I heard a few years ago that he finally got his act together and that through DDP and what, you know, similar to the story with Jake the Snake Roberts, that, you know, DDP was able to get him finally to get clean to help himself to move forward in his life. And there's a part of me that ever since that news broke out, I thought, okay, maybe Hall is going to get a new lease on life in this business. Not as a wrestler, of course, because by that point he was already in his 50s and his, you know, it looked like he'd, he'd physically been through hell. So I'm not talking about him having another run. But I thought, one of the major companies has to hire this guy just for his wrestling mind. You know, I was waiting for Tony Khan to announce one day that Scott Hall is working behind the scenes as a as an agent or a trainer or a manager of some kind. You know, or that that Vince McMahon brought him in. You know, because he brings in you know Shawn Michaels as a trainer in NXT. You know, Road Dog was a trainer too. You know, he he brings back wrestlers from the Attitude Era as mentors and trainers for this new generation. So deep down, I've been like waiting for the announcement that like Triple H and Sean have brought Hall into the sort of the NXT nucleus, and he's going to use that brilliant wrestling mind of his to craft the future superstars of this industry. And that never happened. And now he's gone. And it's... uh. It's crazy to me because I, I think about, there's another guy, that I, to me there's a comparison to a legendary guitarist, believe it or not, Stevie Ray Vaughan. If, you don't, if you're unfamiliar with Stevie Ray Vaughan, brilliant, brilliant musician, and he had his own struggles, his own demons, and his own trouble with, you know, with the bottle and with the drugs, and... Eventually, he was able to get off it. He was able to become this big positive voice for, for good. And just then, 
just as he's now finally living a clean, happy, sober life. And he was in a helicopter that crashed and he died. And I, that always killed me. I'm like, wait a minute. So this guy finally gets it all figured out and then has the whole ride cut short. And now to me, Scott Hall's in that same unfortunate category. Here's a guy who through most of his adult life has struggled. Now he's finally on track. He's finally consistently happy, healthy, sober, doing his thing. And then he falls down, breaks his hip, and then has three heart attacks and is dead the next day. And um, the timing of it was interesting, too, because he had the heart attacks on Saturday. And they announced that he's now on life support. And he's dead on Sunday, right? Well, coincidentally, Saturday night, not related to Scott Hall, by the way. Saturday night, I made a decision that I needed to kick a substance because I found that I managed to get through most of my adult life so far without any kind of habits. You know, while I have addiction in my family, I never got addicted to anything. I'm not a drinker. I'm not a smoker. I never did any hard drugs. I've always kind of been, you know, I'm not straight edge or anything. I'm not CM Punk. But I went through most of my adult life without any kind of substance issues at all. But in these last four or five years is when I've fully discovered marijuana. <laughs> and while at first it was something I was doing just every once in a while, two, three times a year at a party to kind of have a fun giggly time with my friends, um, over these years it transformed into something more. It transformed into a habit that I was having a real hard time kicking. And it went from something that I would do two or three times a year to two or three times a week to seven days a week. And it went from something I would do just late at night once the kids were asleep and my wife was in bed. I mean, my wife would smoke too. So sometimes, you know, we put the kids down and go smoke a bowl and sit out on the porch. And, you know, it, it wasn't all bad. But it's even then it continued. This downward spiral began for me where, you know, instead of waiting for the kids to go to bed, eh, maybe I'll sneak a hit around dinner time. You know, ah, dinner, it'll help settle my stomach, a nice little head as I'm, you know, beginning my digestion. Then it went from seven to right before I pick up the kids from school. I'm going to go have a little puff just to be extra kind of groovy and funny and light around the kids. And then it became, well, I'm home alone and it's nine in the morning and there's no one here to stop me. So I'm going to smoke. I'm going to do a wake and bake. And I would romanticize this idea of the wake and bake. And uh, it eventually became where I was just high like most of the time. And people didn't really know I'm a, I'm a very functioning high. It's not like those stoners you see on TV where I sit on the couch and boo. Like I'm able to do a surprising amount while stoned out of my mind and people can't even really tell. So I guess it's like a blessing and a curse that I could fake it. But no one could really tell how much I was doing it except for me.
And Saturday night, something just kind of clicked and I felt myself really just kind of over it and tired of chasing the high all the time and having to buy more, you know, weed and having to buy more vape pens and all that. The upkeep of trying to maintain this habit was becoming just the opposite of fun. And so Saturday night, I made the decision, I'm done. And Saturday is when the news broke about Scott Hall is going to be taken off life support. And Kevin Nash basically posted a eulogy to him that morning. So even though he didn't pass until that evening after 6 o'clock, it was already pretty much known from the morning that this is it. Hall is unlikely to make it through today. And... I swear to you, it took that 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 feeling I had, the, the, the feeling I'd had the night before of, I need to kick this damn monkey off my back because it's starting to take control of my life and I'm not moving forward in the way that I want to because I'm just too focused on being high all the time. There's so much I want to do and I spend so much of my time in this glaze that I ain't getting it done. When I heard about Hall's impending death, it took that feeling and made it a promise that I'm going to make to myself. And inspired by Scott Hall's story, I decided I'm not going to let my demons rule me. I'm not going to let my demons destroy the rest of my adult life. So... I had a run here for four or five years where I was, I slowly slipped into being a, a jovial stoner who uh, is good for a laugh and can you know, do all the things asked of him, but isn't going anywhere really, kind of spinning his wheels, if we're being honest. I'm going to put all that behind me because I have a lot of living to do and I can't do it stoned. And Scott Hall... Um, it was just weird how that all happened all at once. Because I remember too, like, I had made the decision, but I still had a little bit of stuff back at the house. And I called my wife shortly after seeing the news about Scott and the post by Kevin Nash. And I called my wife and I said, hey, listen, uh, I have my stash in this place. Can you throw it out before I get home? Because I don't want to do that anymore. And she was surprised, and she was more than fine with it. She's pregnant now. She's eight months pregnant, so she's not joining me in smoking those bowls at night anymore. And uh, she was all too happy to chuck it. She didn't realize what it was doing to me and how bad it had gotten. But she helped me out, and she threw my what I had left out. And Scott Hall... Uh, the passing of Scott really just solidified for me that enough is enough. I'm not going to let this stuff rule me. And God, Scott, may you rest in peace. And uh, you've inspired a lot of people. You changed a lot of lives in the wrestling business. There's lots of wrestlers who owe their careers to wanting to emulate you and wanting to be like you and wanting to, you know, have half the impact you had on the industry. And 
I just want whatever celestial energy there is of you in the galaxy to know that you've inspired me to get my shit together. So, rest in peace, Scott Hall. And now, the other thing I want to talk about here on this first episode of The Wrestling Fanboy is Cody Rhodes. Because uh, something I want you guys to know straight out of the gate here with this new show is I am an AEW guy. I'm an AEW lifer already. You know, I, I, I watched All In. I ordered Double or Nothing. And then as soon as they announced that they were going to have a weekly TV show, oof, I was there. I was there even though it was seven hours away from me, even though I couldn't get anyone to come with me, I drove seven hours by myself on a Wednesday to be there on October 2nd, 2019, because I wanted to see the launch of AEW. I knew that this was going to revolutionize professional wrestling. I had stopped watching just to kind of fill you in on my gaps, okay? Like, I watched wrestling from 88 to about 91, then from about 90... I mean, I told you, a little bit of casual in 94, 95, but then intense 96 through like 2004, then casual again, and then I got back in during the era of CM Punk, but then when Punk left wrestling, so did I. I was done after Punk left because everything he pointed out in the pipe bomb was exactly why I found the shows totally uninteresting in those years. The product was turning to hell. I could see the joy in the wrestlers was just disappearing. Suddenly, what had worked so well during the Monday Night Wars era wasn't even being allowed anymore. You know, the thing that had always made wrestling work was getting these guys to take their real personalities and dial it up to 11. And you give them their bullet points, you put a mic in their hand, and you let them work their magic. But during this era of, like, you know, from 2006 straight through to 2013 is where we really started seeing this more corporate, this more sanitized WWE. I mean, honestly, when they switched to the name WWE, I was almost done. Because now we're just totally removing any pretext that this is some sort of combat sport. You know, World Wrestling Federation, uh, Phil, you know, it, it helps you to, you know, suspend your disbelief and, and you're watching a federation of wrestlers and they're fighting and there's a championship and it's like a sports-based product. When it became WWE, the World Wrestling Entertainment, that right there, I'm like, this is a bad sign. And then, you know, it being a publicly traded company, and now they have to answer to stockholders, and now the Monday Night Wars era was all about edgy content, and now we have to do PG. Now everything has to be super sanitized for kids again. And now all the scripts are pre-written, and the, the wrestlers no longer sound like wrestlers who are dialing themselves up to 11. They sound like guys who are spitting out memorized dialogue that doesn't fit them. They all sound alike. They all sound boring. 
And that's what made punk such an amazing breath of fresh air. And the pipe bomb and the whole way that he was able to kind of show, like, wrestling worked when it was the other way. What is this crap we're doing now? So when he left, I was like, you know what? I'm leaving with him. So from about 2013 straight through to 2019, I basically didn't watch wrestling. I would, I would, I would attend WrestleMania parties. So I would go and see the big show. And I would tend to try to tune in a little bit around the road to WrestleMania. Every year around January, I would give them a chance to hook me again. And it just never stuck. So for five years, wrestling was pretty much a past tense fandom of mine, which was a big deal. Again, wrestling had been a massive part of my life for a long time. And now all of a sudden, I, you know, I took it off my DVRs. I'm no longer checking PWTorch.com or anything else. I was just, I had tuned out. I thought, well, WWE is a monopoly. I don't care about TNA Impact. And if this is what wrestling is now, I'm out. And that's why. When 2019 came rolling around that we started, you know, all elite wrestling and they're going to be on TNT, just like in the Monday Night Wars era. And they've got Chris Jericho and they've got Cody and then they've got this Kenny Omega guy I've been hearing about. Because that's the thing. I still, at that point, my only real viewership of wrestling had been WWF into WWE and WCW. I never really watched any, I didn't watch any Ring of Honor. I never tried to do, you know, tape trading or any of that other stuff people would do. I was not dialed into what was going on in New Japan or any of that stuff. But I would hear stuff like, oh, Chris Jericho on his latest hiatus from WWE is actually selling out stadiums in Japan with this guy who calls himself the best bout machine, Kenny Omega. And so when they announced AEW and Kenny Omega's there, along with Cody, and I'd heard about the Young Bucks and all this, I'm like, huh. So we're about to have a true alternative to WWE. I got to check this out. I got to support this. And then when I order Double or Nothing, and at the end, Moxley comes out, and he, he paradigm shifts Kenny Omega off the set. I was like, whoa, this is like that. This I, I got Monday Night War feels again. That feeling of someone who was just on WWE TV, hopping the hopping the guardrail and attacking someone in the ring. And like it just felt like, wait a minute, wrestling is about to be really cool again. So when Dynamite was announced, I remember this was a travel day for me. When tickets went on sale on August 20th, it was a travel day. I was in Orlando, Florida with seven of seven relatives and we were about to come back from Disney World. And I remember being at the hotel and sitting there with my uh, carry-on luggage waiting for the shuttle back to the airport. And I was on the phone at the Ticketmaster trying to get my tickets to Dynamite. And I, and I texted some other wrestling friends if they would want to make the insane seven-hour drive with me. And I couldn't get anyone. So I said, screw it. I'm not missing this. I'm going alone. And this brings us back to Cody. Because 
I was there for that first Dynamite and that first match, Cody Rhodes versus Sammy Guevara. I remember when Cody walked out, the place erupted. It went insane. And I, you know, I, I have a lot of experience with hot crowds because I live in New York City. So all, almost all of my live wrestling shows have been at the world's most famous arena. Most of my wrestling viewership has been at Madison Square Garden. You know, I was there at the very first Elimination Chamber when they had at Survivor Series 2002 when Shawn Michaels' second match back ever from retirement. He's in those ugly brown tights and he won the the you know the big gold belt in that Elimination Chamber where Rob Van Dam almost killed Triple H with the frog splash that landed on his windpipe. Me and my boy Rob were sitting there in the crowd. And you know who was sitting behind us? Because we were in like a press box. Because at that time, this is a little bit of a tangent, but at that time, I was helping to edit and at times rewrite a column in the New York Daily News by a wrestling columnist called The Slammer. I thought I, I always thought it was kind of funny if there was a wrestling column in a legitimate newspaper, but the Slammer was an interesting character because in you know, in newspapers sometimes they have the picture of the author next to the article, and the Slammer would always be wearing a luchador mask. So I always got a kick out of that. And then, as luck should have it, my dad married a woman who worked for an editing company. And one of the things that she had to edit was the Slammer's columns. And she knew I was a big wrestling fan, so she would pass his columns over to me for me to look over and for me to touch up. And the Slammer, the funny thing was that even though he's this big wrestling columnist and that's his whole deal, he really wouldn't go to the shows when they came to town. So he would give me his press tickets. So there was a there was a, a you know a stretch of time there where every single time WWE was in town, I'd be at the garden for every Raw and every SmackDown. I was there at the MSG Raw when Triple H came back from the epic injury. Remember the quad injury and the My Sacrifice videos with Creed singing while he's doing his training montage? And then he came back at MSG and like it was one of the greatest pops of all time. And he was there in the ring doing his pose in every corner and it sounded like people were sacrificing virgins. They were so excited to see him. I was there. I was one of the people screaming. You know, I was even there the at King of the Ring when Kurt Angle threw Shane McMahon through the glass wall. That was in Jersey. That wasn't in Madison Square Garden. But like, and Booker T came out and threw Stone Cold through the table and kind of began the WCW invasion of WWE. Like, I was there for that. I, I've been in the building for some really tremendous moments in professional wrestling. And I got to tell you, when Cody's music hit, that place erupted about as loud as I've ever heard a crowd erupt. I remember texting my boy Jeremy going, Cody's a made man. Cody, he got the kind of pop that the top guys in WWE got. He got like a Stone Cold pop. He got a John Cena pop. Well, actually, at that time, John Cena was already, uh, you know, he was never... John Cena, that's a whole... I could do a whole episode on my thoughts on John Cena. I'm not going to go there today. But 
you know, he got the big guy pop. And I was so happy for him. You know, because even though I wasn't following wrestling, I wasn't watching it anymore, somehow or other in 2016, it had been brought to my attention that Cody, despite there not being a viable number two company in North America, Cody Rhodes decided not to re-up with WWE. He decided he was going to go out into the world and make a new name for himself and create his own legacy. And even though I had never been a huge Cody fan, I you know I, again since I didn't watch NWA, since I don't know about Jim Crockett, I was never a Dusty Rhodes guy either. You know, remember I'm a WWE. I, I was forever kind of a WWF lifer, and so Dusty and the Rhodes and all that stuff. That way, I didn't have that that like ooh the Rhodes family. I never really cared about Cody. To me, he was just you know. Dusty's nerdy, lispy, skinny, mid-card son. You know, I saw him basically the way Vince McMahon seemed to see him, you know? And by the way, I have tangents upon tangents. Listen, I'm so backed up on wrestling thoughts. Now you're going to you're going to fully see how long I've been waiting to launch this show because there's so many topics upon topics that I can stack here. But I've, something I've noticed in recent years, and I'll get back to the main topic, is that I found that since WWE's product is so much shaped by Vince McMahon's vision, I found that as a wrestling fan, I was into what he was into and not into what he wasn't into, because that's all I'd ever seen. So look, like for example, for D Vince McMahon, tag team wrestling means dick. He's never really cared about the tag division. You know, if you really pay attention over the years, the WWE's tag team stuff, it's always been, you know, there'll be little streaks here and there where there'll be some great teams doing some stuff. But by and large, tag team wrestling, it's never the main event. It's never like the big featured match, unless it's the formula. Unless it's two guys who are feuding, who have to be unlikely partners and fight someone else. You know, Vince has done that to death. But it's just been funny in recent years, now that I've sort of red-pilled my wrestling fandom, and now that I'm being, I'm opening up to new forms of wrestling and new types of wrestling products, now I'm learning to appreciate so much more about the art of professional wrestling. But... Up until that point, I find that a lot of my opinions about certain, you know, types of wrestling or certain wrestlers, I I was basically aping how Vince felt about them because the way he would present them on TV is how I would feel about them. So Vince never thought much of Cody. You could tell in the booking that he just thought of him as, you know, nothing special. And so I, in turn had taken him that way too. But in 2016, when I heard about this bold choice that he's going to go out into the wild and he's got this list of things he's going to do and he started announcing these like one-off matches against certain notable other wrestlers and other companies, I was like, I'm not going to watch any of it. But I'm happy for Cody. This seems pretty cool. This is pretty bold. I feel like, you know... The, the, who does that? 
Who leaves the number one company in the world where you've got a job and by all accounts they had offered him a new deal? Who turns his back on that to go into the great unknown because they're doubling down on themselves because they believe in what they can do? So I was like, you know, Cody, I'm not going to watch any of what you're doing out in these indies, but I'm happy for you and I hope that this works out. So then now we circle to three years later and I haven't really, again, I wasn't following Cody's stuff, but I knew what he had set out to do. And in a lot of ways, AEW felt like the end game of Cody's plan. You know, Cody betted on himself. He wanted to show that there was another way to present wrestling. He wanted to step up and show that Vince McMahon's vision for wrestling really shouldn't be the standard and it shouldn't be the only game in town. So when AEW showed up, I'm like, wow, Cody, you son of a bitch, you did it. Whoa. You know, so for me, in a lot of ways, AEW and Cody are attached at the hip. And, you know, now throughout these last two or three years, it hasn't been all hits. You can tell Cody's booking his own stuff, and that's one of the things that's, you know, one of the advantages of AEW as opposed to WWE. The wrestlers have a lot more creative freedom. It really is the kind of wrestling landscape that CM Punk basically talked about in the pipe bomb. Basically talking, you know, it's the type of wrestling landscape that wrestlers had been yearning for for a long time. And Cody, you know, not everything that he did wowed me. But I was still a huge fan. And when the crowd started to turn on him, I didn't join them. I remember I went to, you know, speaking of going to big wrestling events in New York, I was there in September when they did Grand Slam at Arthur Ashe. And I was sitting there with my kids and my friend Mike, and we got to watch this loaded card in this amazing stadium scenario. I mean, it felt like WrestleMania on a Wednesday night. I got to watch Brian Danielson and Kenny Omega fight to a draw. I mean, it was an unbelievable night. But and I can I'm going to talk a little more about that in recollections of that night at another time. But when it came to Cody specifically, I remember my kids looking at me like, Dad, why is everyone booing Cody? Because when Cody came out, and, and that was when Brandy finally came out after having the baby. So she joined him on the walk to the ring, and the boos only got even louder. Me, my kids and I were surrounded. We were outnumbered. Our entire section was booing him furiously. And, you know, it's, I started feeling a little weird. I'm like, what is going on here? Why do people hate him so much? This is one of the reasons that we have this amazing show and the, one of the reasons that wrestling has become watchable and exciting again is because of this motherfucker in the ring right now. Why are we booing him? And then I, I was trying to be patient with what he was working on because it seemed like he was trying to spin an old idea on its head. And what I mean is this. In WWE, there were there have been several examples over the years of the fans booing the hell out of the chosen one in the company. Even though he's supposed to be the top face, like John Cena, 
or Roman Reigns, even though they're supposed to be the top face, the fans are just rejecting it. They, they, they feel that the push is forced. They're tired of seeing this character be the Superman guy who makes it through everything. And WWE would just never budge. Cena never turned heel. Thank God Roman Reigns finally did. But there, And there's plenty of other examples, but there have been many a times when the fans have let their feelings be known that we don't buy this guy or we don't like him in this role, and Vince would just be so stubborn that he would still just force-feed us Super Cena and Super Reigns until we were just over it. So I thought, hmm, I wonder if Cody sees what's going on, that the fans are basically treating him that way, and yet he keeps refusing to turn. I wonder, though, if he's going to basically use that heat to eventually turn heel, but he's going to actually like acknowledge it in a way, that he's going to incorporate this sudden turn of the fans into his eventual heel turn. That unlike Vince, who's like, no, I'm never going to turn this guy. Remember, Cody would even say, I'm never turning heel. It felt like he was trying to evoke that kind of frustration from the fans. That, why won't this guy turn? We're so sick of him as a good guy. But it seemed like Cody was in on it. You know, unlike what was what what would happen in WWE programming, where we knew our boos were falling on totally deaf ears, I'm like, Cody knows better. So he's going to work on some sort of fascinating way to make this work. And instead, it just kind of got weirder and weirder. He, he cut these like pandering promos saying basically like, please don't boo me. I'm one of you. I've done all these cool things. Why won't you love me? And, you know, I began to sort of lose faith. And then, I mean, the, the big... You know, I'm trying to think of like exactly how I want to go about breaking this down. Because the final appearance of a Rhodes on AEW TV was really cringeworthy. When Brandy Rhodes came out and she talked smack about Cincinnati. And she's basically cutting a heel promo while she's supposedly the... A face who's married to the one of the top faces in the company, but then she gets attacked by American Top Team and Paige Van Zandt. I mean, the whole thing was a mess. The whole thing was a big fail, but never in a million years did I think that that would be how it ends. You know, I thought, okay, well, after this is over, they're going to go backstage and they're going to figure out a way to make this make sense. Or, may, or th this all has to be part of some greater plan. And then all of a sudden, a week and a half later, they were just gone. And I don't, I'm sort of mystified about what happened. And I'm secretly hoping that it's all a work. I'm secretly hoping that he really, you know, him and Tony have worked something out and he's going to come back eventually, but that he realized, okay, this crowd, this is a toxic environment right now. I need to kind of hit pause and I'll come back once, you know, um, what do they say? 
what's the phrase? Uh, I'm not going to try to remember the phrase. But about you know, making it, distance making you know, the heart grow fonder. That one. I, I felt like maybe he thought if I just go away for a few months, eventually they'll miss me and I'll be able to come back and do something. But then these WWE rumors popped up. And I got to tell you, folks, if he shows up in WWE, then I'm done with Cody Rhodes. <laughs> I All the respect that I have for him, all of the street cred that he's earned in my eyes, would just fly right out the window. Because... To go on this whole campaign of believing in yourself and and I mean destroying the throne on his way to the ring and double or nothing, the lyrics to his theme song are all about you know taking my name back and being the king of my own kingdom, being the you know the, being the 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 voice of the revolution. If he tucks tail and goes back to corporate WWE where they are going to make him recite their garbage lines of dialogue and ultimately just turn him into a mid-carter again. Because let's face it, I don't. there's no way Vin, uh, Vince is having Cody come in and he's not going to beat Roman Reigns and he's not going to go after Brock Lesnar. He's not going to be a top, top guy. He may have this thing with Seth Rollins at WrestleMania 38, which I'm like, again, I'm just hoping that, that this is all gaslighting. I hope that Cody has been spreading misinformation to Meltzer so that these fake reports pop up, but that he doesn't actually show up. Because I got to tell you, too, I, I, for the first time in a long time, I put on Monday Night Raw this past Monday. And that is a huge chore for me. I really can't do it. Three hours is too long. That product is too stale. I just, it's not for me. I can't sit through it. I have a real hard time. So I put on Raw and I would just fast forward. I got to the Seth Rollins stuff and this teasing of, of you know, what's he got, what's he going to do for WrestleMania? And then the main event. Remember, they were in Jacksonville this past Friday. So the big rumor is they're in Jacksonville, Florida, home of AEW. Cody's always down there with Brandy. This is going to be the big moment to debut him. WrestleMania's in three weeks. This is how they're going to kick off Rhodes and Rollins. So even though I didn't want it to happen, I had to see. I was curious. And he didn't show. There were some more, like weird, vague, cryptic references to things that were dashing or a nightmare or revolutionary. Um, but once again, three weeks going now, weird little references to Cody, no actual Cody. And I didn't watch the other weeks of Raw. I would just read about it in the dirt sheets. But I, I really believed this Jacksonville rumor. Because I'm like, you know what? That does make sense. You know, so they've teased him the last three weeks to get ready for his Jacksonville shocking debut. And uh, watching that show just made me feel all kinds of sad for every wrestler on it. So watching that, I'm like, 
it just further solidified for me that if Cody signs a contract to be on that shitty show and be a cog in the corporate wheel of Vince McMahon's wrestling product, then they can have him. I don't, you know, and Cody, I don't know what all these last six years were for if you fought to make your kingdom just to go be a jester in the court of the McMahon family again. So, I, this is something that we'll be talking about in the weeks to come, in episodes two, three, four, and onward, as we see. There's a chance, of course, that Cody could show up next week or the week after. Uh, I will not be watching those shows. I just can't. I can't do it, folks. Uh, but let's see. It, it, it's funny to be like, simultaneously following it and trying to see what happens there while also praying and hoping that it doesn't happen. <laughs> so, um, listen, this is something that I'll be following and hopefully uh, you've enjoyed this first episode of The Wrestling Fanboy. And if you do, please, by all means, get me started on the right track with some positive five-star reviews and referrals. Let your friends know that there's a new wrestling show in town. And uh, if you liked it, spread the word. So, folks, until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Bad times don't last, but bad guys do. <laughs>